Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 409. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 409 you're listening to. My guest today is studio owner and engineer Roy Silverstein, who owns Rarified Recording in San Diego, California. Somebody I've actually known for a little bit of time. He's an early fan of the podcast and has visited me here in Lafayette for coffee. And that was a number of years ago, and I recently just reached out to him and asked him to be on the show because I thought his perspective on his entry into audio and his perspective on studio building, which we'll talk about, is very fascinating. So I'm very excited to have him on. Roy Silverstein, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about doing it yourself. This rant was inspired by a conversation I had with Brian Matheson, who's a former WCA guest, and McKay Garner, also former guest. Brian and I were talking at a Bay Area audio nerd meetup the other night, and we were talking about some other topic, but strangely enough, we came around to the topic of making your own DB25 cables. Have you ever done that? That is a pain in the ass. I've done it and I've screwed it up many times. It's the most frustrating thing when you're hand soldering a DB25 connector and you get halfway through and you realize you're doing it backwards. Yeah, big pain in the ass. Anyways, Brian turned me on to the concept of doing it via crimping, which I didn't even know you could do. And he owns a studio, Skyline Studios, so he told me how many thousands of dollars he's saved over the years by creating his own DB25 cables. And that got me thinking. When I think of do-it-yourself, one person that comes to mind is McKay Garner, who I just mentioned. McKay is the ultimate MacGyver of pro audio. By the way, I'll put links in the show notes to Brian and McKay's episodes, but McKay specifically is one of the more inspiring people that I know who thinks outside of the box when it comes to the concept of, okay, I need something. He doesn't just think, or at least I don't think he thinks this, but he doesn't just go and buy stuff right out of the gate. Like he seems to go through a process of figuring out if he can make it, buy it used, or repurpose something else to do the same job. He is the ultimate inspiration in that department. And I'll give you a couple examples. McKay and I both have Atmos setups. We were both going through the process of getting mounts. What did I do? You know, I just sucked it up and bought the mounts that I had to buy from this company in Southern California who makes great mounts, but they're just stupidly expensive. They shouldn't have been that much money. And I'm still like bitter about it. <laughs> I won't call out the company. Whereas McKay figured out, okay, I have to put four speakers in the ceiling and Amphion doesn't make a mount for those speakers. Therefore, I'm going to create a mount. So, you know, I spend a bunch of money 
he goes and creates, you know, exactly what he needs and saves a ton of money. He's incredibly patient in that department where I am not. Another example, we were putting in mini splits at the same time. He was putting one into his studio. My wife and I were putting one into her office, which is an ADU outside of the house. And we tried to do it on our own and I just got stumped and we had a whole, you know, snafu with Home Depot. And in the end, we ended up hiring a company to do it. It was a chunk of dough. What did McKay do? He found the ultimate DIY mini split company who makes it very easy to install mini splits. He buys it and installs it on his own and saves about $3,000 compared to what we did. Like unbelievable. Really, really, um, McKay is a super thoughtful, careful thinker about stuff like this. So if you're listening, McKay, I hope you're not like turning red faced here, but I just want to call out that you do some smart stuff. Anyways, let's talk about the whole concept. There's a million websites out there, believe it or not, that provide DIY materials. So you can approach it like that by going to the companies that provide the the stuff or, you know, like case in point, acoustic absorbers. You can find many websites that will sell you the frame, the fabric, the insulation, and they're marking that up, of course, like anybody would. And you may be paying a premium just for that convenience of finding all the DIY materials on one site, or you could go down to your local hardware store, your Lowe's, your Home Depot, your Ace, whatever your hardware place is these days. And you could find the materials on your own as they're marketed as everyday materials. Whereas, you know, sometimes when we specialize in an area like acoustic absorber materials, there's going to be a little bit more of a markup. But if you're just going to buy wood or fabric or insulation, it is sold based on what the market will bear. But the point is, is you can save a shit ton of money if you make them on your own. And of course, it doesn't just go to acoustic treatment. There's also microphones. You can build your own microphones. There are kits. There's uh, kits for outboard gear and DI boxes and cables. And, you know, you really can put together a lot of stuff. There's a lot of companies out there that you want to build an 1176 style compressor? Go for it. You want to build an LA-2A? Go for it. You could do it. You could do all that. You know, you could go to Redco. Redco.com sells cables. They sell connectors. Everything you need to build your own mic cables, instrument cables, et cetera, et cetera. DIY recording equipment run, of course, by former WCA guest Peterson Goodwin. You want a G-style bus compressor? They're selling one right now. Uh, what is, where is that? I had that bookmark here. Yeah, DIYrecordingequipment.com is selling a G-Bus VCA compressor kit. You build it on your own, you'll spend 850 bucks. Whereas if you bought one of these kind of compressors new, you're not gonna spend 850 bucks. You're gonna spend a lot more. So there are many benefits to doing stuff on your own like this. Obviously the money savings is a thing. I also look at it as the pride that you have from doing these things on your own, the skill set that you learn, the confidence you build along the way. Because if you start building a lot of, a lot of this stuff and put it in, in place, 
you're going to have a lot of skills. You're going to have a lot of pride about those skills, and you're going to have a lot less fear about getting your hands dirty in the future on other stuff. So yeah, at the end of the day, big money savings, big investment in your skill set, but also, you know, you may not be the type of person that has an aptitude for doing that. I don't, I really don't. The concept and idea of building my own piece of gear does not interest me in the least. Cables, sure. I don't mind building cables or repairing cables. That's fine, but that's not something I want to get in the habit of doing. I mean, I did that when I had a studio in San Francisco. I built a ton of cables. Somebody gave me a bunch of mic cables and I just bought the connectors and boom, had a bunch of mic cables. But there's really, I think, two types of us out there. And one type is built for building stuff. You know, if you watch um, some of the YouTube videos from Adam Savage, who was on uh, Mythbusters, like it amazes me how that dude's brain works. He's just amazing in the things that he will go to the effort to make. And I think that's super cool. I'm just not that person. And you may not be that person either. So if you choose to do it, great. If you choose not to do it, that's great too. Whatever floats your boat and whoever you are, be yourself, right? But I have to just say, there's some great benefits here that I know I'm missing out on. And I really wanted to just call out, you know, Brian Matheson and McKay Garner in particular for inspiring this rant in my brain that I had to get out. I had to tell you about it. So I'll put some links in the show notes. Some websites, I think, provide some some great stuff. Like I mentioned Redco and uh, Microphone Hacks, and there's some other companies. Uh, DIYRecordingEquipment.com, of course. Visit them, check it out. If you've never done it, if you've never built your own cable or built your own piece of gear, give it a shot. Maybe you like it. And if you don't, well, you'll figure that out really quick and you'll just avoid that at all costs. So uh, that's it. Yeah. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. And if you get your hands dirty and figure out it's not for you, that's okay too. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, 
check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Roy Silverstein here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Roy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, man. It's yeah. a great honor, really. Been listening a long time. I know, well, we originally met several years ago. You came out to Lafayette. I think we went yeah. to Phil's Coffee. Yeah, we got coffee. My mom lives in Walnut Creek, so. Right. I hit you up, you seem open to meeting up, which was awesome, and I was like, yeah, let's see what Matt has to say. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm not short of opinions. That's for sure. <laughs> well, let's focus on you. Where did you grow up originally? I grew up in Evanston, Illinois. That's just north of Chicago. In Evanston where Sure was located yes, at one point? Yes, exactly. Totally. Yeah, funny enough. Huh. Probably more known for like Northwestern University, but yeah, Sure, Sure Brothers, I think at the time. Yeah. But now they're just Sure. I always would try to uh, get an internship there and stuff, but never worked out. <laughs> and I remember calling them once as a kid, like, can I buy factory direct? <laughs> and they were just like, uh, no. Get out of here, kid. <laughs> well, so growing up, brothers, sisters? Yeah, older brother and older sister. What did the role of music play in your household? Well, my dad was a musician, casually. He played guitar, he played banjo. He was really into like Pete Seeger, Simon and Garfunkel, that kind of folk stuff, you know? Yeah. Those instruments were kind of put away, though, but there was a piano in the house, and my brother and my sister took lessons, and I took lessons. That's kind of required, basically, when you're in, like, middle school age. But I would just tinker around on that piano and try to figure out what they were learning before I got to the age of actually taking my own lessons. And I remember figuring out, like, that song, The Entertainer, I like figured that out and I was like, cool. And I like figure out how to play it really fast and thought it was cool. As kids and as teenagers, we go through various experiments with different instruments and band programs and such. But by the time you were a young adult, ultimately, did you adopt an instrument? What instrument was your instrument or did you stick with it? 
Well, no, I mean, I didn't love piano. I, I guess I generally didn't love taking lessons and practicing and all that. And I was getting into different kinds of music at that time. It's like the 90s. So, I mean, this is the explosion of Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and all the alternative rock and grunge and all that stuff. And so it was like, I wanted to play guitar. And I had my friends who also wanted to play guitar and we wanted to start a band. So, so I moved out of piano. I got a guitar. I think I rented a guitar at first, which is weird, but just to see, I guess, if it stuck. My mom probably thought, let's rent you a guitar. And uh, I remember handing it to my friend Joe, and he like was pretending to do like the Radiohead creep thing, like, duh, 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 and like totally just broke a string right away. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I had to like, walk back to the guitar store like, oh, my string is broken. So yeah, I got into guitar and started playing with my friends. I took some lessons, but the real thing was playing with my friends in, in the basement, starting our own band, the Technicolor Pink. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> oh, I have the box set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that that was really where things started to really go for me, with the interest in audio, for sure. Did you continue to pursue music, or, or did you at some point discover audio and think, oh, I'm just going to be an audio person? I mean, it was kind of a parallel path for a while where music was always there, like doing my own music. I had a solo project called Roybot. I, I mean, in <laughs> high school, I was in like three bands by senior year. The Destructors, 16 and Dreaming, and Squelch. <laughs> bands that never went anywhere. But that was also how I taught myself how to do initial recording. Mm -hmm. The drummer from the original band, the Technicolor Pink, Miles Levy, his father is actually a really great musician named Howard Levy who's played with like Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, and he's like a killer harmonica player. Well, he had a four-track, cassette four-track, Tascam, Porta something, 01 or 02. And I just borrowed that thing. I don't even think I talked to Howard about it. I think Miles just like brought it to me, and I was just like, I'm keeping this for a while. <laughs> 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 yeah, it had the manual and everything, and I just figured out how to use it. And I was like, this is awesome. So... I started recording in high school, recording my own projects. I even recorded another band that I wasn't in called the Impala Fuelers, just like a punk band. So before I even got to college, I had already recorded a bunch of stuff. I mean, it was all pretty crappy, but it was seminal kind of learning time, just teaching myself. What did you study in college? So this is where it gets interesting. So it just didn't seem like there was a path. Maybe I just wasn't aware of recording schools. I kind of knew about some of them because some people I know were at Columbia College in Chicago has a pretty cool program. Mm -hmm. I knew some people in that, but I don't know. In my family, my brother went to Princeton and like my sister went to university. It was kind of like expected, like you're going to go to your university. And I was good at math and science and that kind of thing. I'd been looking at engineering, not audio engineering, but I did want to do something related to audio because I was fascinated by the technology part of everything that I was getting into. So I found out about a program at University of Miami, which you may know of because Andrew Sheps went to this program, but it actually was a slightly different program. Mm. So at University of Miami, there's one that's called music engineering, and there's one that's called audio engineering. Now, music engineering is what Andrew Sheps did. That's in the School of Music. It's more focused on recording and that kind of thing, but you have to have a principal instrument. You're taking all kinds of music classes and doing recitals and all that. And I was like, eh, I don't know about that part. <laughs> but the audio engineering was in the College of Engineering. And this was more my speed. So that was very technical. It's a full Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering. Mm. So you come out with a legit degree, BSWE, with an audio emphasis. It's kind of a cool program there. Interesting. I think I may be wrong about this, but if I recall correctly with conversations with Andrew, I think Joe Barisi also went mm -hmm. to that school. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I did not cross paths with those people. I think they were there before I was there. So you, you did this program. I assume you graduated from the program. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Four year program. Especially if you have a sibling yeah. who went to Princeton, I'm sure the pressure is kind of on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you do with that degree after you got out? So I almost got a job initially at Analog Devices in Boston, which is a chip manufacturer. Yeah. I interviewed with them. They like told me they were going to give me a job. And then it's just like, where's the offer, guys? And I was like, well, sorry, we can't do it anymore for some reason. I don't know what happened. So I kind of like, Went back to Evanston's like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I was just looking for jobs, basically. Thought about maybe going to grad school, but kept looking. And it didn't take too long, actually, before through a weird connection, like my mom's coworker's daughter worked at this company in San Diego called Qualcomm, which I had, I didn't know anything about San Diego or Qualcomm, but this company had this audio position they were looking to fill entry level. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll interview for it. So I came out to San Diego, did the interview, got the job. So it was like 2001, I moved out to San Diego, basically not knowing anybody. So tell me about this job. What were you doing at Qualcomm? Yeah, so Qualcomm, they're like a innovator in the wireless communication space mm -hmm. for cell phones mainly. They developed this technology called CDMA, which was a, a very efficient way to communicate over the cellular network to connect more devices than the other methods that had existed before. And that en ended up becoming like this big standard that all cell phone technology was going to be based off of CDMA. So they started blowing up because they had all these patents and this technology. At the same time they were making cell phones, they decided, you know what, let's just focus on making the chips that we can sell to all the different companies that make cell phones and we'll sell off the phone company to Kyocera is what they did, some Japanese company. So I came in right at that moment where they got rid of the phone division and I started working for a chip division that they called Qualcomm CDMA Technologies, QCT, and just jumped in helping to design these chips, which did a lot of things. I mean, this was not just one chip. In fact, it was many chips that make up a cell phone. There's chips that deal with the over-the-air connection. There's power management chips. And there's, there's an audio chip, or it might be integrated into one of the other parts, like the main processor or something. But So I helped developing the audio parts of this chip, and I was a systems engineer. That is a kind of higher level role. Like I wasn't doing the low level design of the integrated circuits, the chips. Mm -hmm. I was doing more architectures, specs, that kind of thing, where we put together what this thing needs to look like, how good it needs to perform, how does it interface to all the other chips and all the other parts of the system, the software, that kind of thing. Did you enjoy the job? Yeah, I mean, in time, burnout can happen. Let's put it that way. But yeah, initially, there was definitely like a pretty exciting thing. I mean, not what I expected to do exactly. I thought maybe I would work for a company like Sure, something in pro audio. And this was not really pro audio. It's consumer audio, I guess. Mm -hmm. But hey, you know. It was a job, it was audio related, paid well. There was a lot to learn for sure. Yeah. What was the takeaway from that, from whether it's consumer electronics, the understanding of that, or was there anything that you could directly attribute to pro audio that you were like, oh, okay, this has a direct line to pro audio and I get this value out of it? I mean, you get to learn a lot about technical specifications in this kind of job. It's a spec driven 
business. It's a numbers business. In fact, to the point where like, we hardly ever really listened to what we made, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But like, it was pretty much like, okay, what's the distortion need to be? And now we're going to measure it. Is it meeting the spec? Okay, cool. What's the frequency response look like? Is it within plus or minus whatever? Okay, cool. What's the signal to noise ratio? But you start to learn about what specs really, really mean and the details there. And you can compare pieces of equipment a little more accurately, I think, with that knowledge, because there's definitely some things where if, it, if the test isn't done under the same conditions, then you can't really compare two things, which most people probably don't realize. So if you're looking at specs between things, it, it helps, I think. And other than that, I mean, general like troubleshooting skills. Yeah. That was huge. Part of the job is figuring out why this thing isn't working, which inevitably would happen. The chips would get manufactured, they'd come back, they start to get tested. And part of the role of the job was figuring out why something's broken. How long did you stay at that job? 14 years. Wow. Yeah. So did you really climb the ladder there? I was a manager at some point. Yeah. You know, low level manager. I reported to someone who reported to someone who reported to someone who reported to someone who. <laughs> That's a, it's always like that in, in those big companies. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So no, I mean, I did, I did well there. I don't know. My heart wasn't totally in it, I guess though, because I was always doing recording on the side. That was like my weekend hobby slash gig, even okay, weeknights. So that's what I wanted to figure out. Like, all right, so how do, how do we go from Qualcomm to rarefied recording this yeah. lovely studio that you have? So obviously, as you just pointed out, you were doing moonlighting recording on the side. Yes. And I assume that they were paying you well, so you're probably accumulating gear. Yeah, definitely a huge benefit of working for a big company is like the pay is good. And there's bonuses and there's stock options. So uh, the stock options, Ooh, yeah, the stock <laughs> options are huge if the company's doing well. So yeah, I was able to buy stuff for sure. And I started doing that, building up the equipment that I had, the microphones and outboard gear and what have you slowly over time, you know? So bring me, bring me to the point at which you decided to leave. Okay. So in 2010, I had saved enough to buy a house and I was like, Starting to feel a little bit burned out at Qualcomm. It's hard work. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of money at stake with these chips and millions and millions of sales. And it's kind of a rat race. You know, it's like, okay, you did that chip. Now do the next one, but like more stuff in it and do it faster, you know, and like, okay, now the next one and now the next one. So it, it, the burnout starts to set in a little bit. So I was getting antsy. I bought this house. I was like, no, I, I knew I wanted to build out a more proper recording space and I was like I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna build the space I don't know what's gonna happen I maybe it'll just be for me in a hobby sense or something but let me see because maybe this is a, a way for me to remove myself from the Qualcomm thing and do something different that's a little more aligned with what I'm really passionate about which is music and recording so I built the space it took well it took three years two years was design I worked with Wes Show, great studio designer so there was design time and there was permitting and there was getting quotes from contractors and just figuring everything out before we broke ground. And then there was a year of construction. So it was 2013, June 2013, when the studio was finally completed. I was still at Qualcomm. I still could only do stuff in the weekends and on weeknights. But kind of organically, I started getting contacted by people in the community, engineers and so forth. And they're like, hey, wow, awesome space. 
can I come and do a project there? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm not going to be there Monday through Friday, like during the day. Yeah, let's do it. So like kind of got the ball rolling with that, plus whatever I could do on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And after a couple of years, I'm looking at this calendar for the studio. and I'm like, man, it's kind of booked up. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I can try this for real full time. Cut the corporate cord and see what happens. So it was 2015 that I finally decided to do that. Were you married? At the time, yes. I was married in 2014. Yeah. So I'd met my wife right at the same time I was starting to like do the build out stuff. It was like 2011 or something like that. So we were just dating at the time and I was like, I'm building a studio. And she was like, cool. (laughs) And then she kind of married into the whole project, I guess. (laughs) Okay. So was there any tension or were there heavy discussions about, hey, I'm, I'm hiring Wes LaShawn. I'm doing a real studio here. no. I think this was not a problem. This was something that I was doing when she met me, basically. So she was like, okay, cool. It wasn't like she was putting money towards this herself. Okay. So it was kind of my thing that I was doing and I could afford it and I just did it. And then what about the discussions of quitting the job? I mean, that that was more like an internal battle, to ah, be honest. Okay. Yeah, because having worked at a very steady job for that long... It was a little nerve-wracking to to stop that and just to see what would happen. Let's talk about that for a sec. Is that not the trap? Like, you get into a gig like that, mm-hmm. you're still able to record part-time. Yes. But you get so, like, it's the golden handcuffs. Yeah. You're making a lot of money. You got stock options, and that generates more oh, money. Yeah. And it's like, well, if I quit, I'm not going to have that. Totally. Yeah, I was literally having trouble breathing. I didn't know why exactly at first. <laughs> and I was going to the doctor like, you're fine. They were like, anything stressful going on in your life? And I was like, I'm about to like quit my job. And they're like, well, yeah, that would probably do it. <laughs> what made you finally do it? You know, I just, I think for me, like I was picturing myself, what's me in 10 years? Am I just still going to be working this kind of job? And I just couldn't see it. Mm. It just didn't match what I wanted out of life. And I was like, you know what? I can try this and I can I can probably go back if I have to. Don't leave on bad terms. I left very graciously, gave plenty of notice and finished up whatever projects, handed things off nicely to people, knowing that I could probably go back if I needed to or, or work somewhere else. I had a skill set now built up or at least in this telecommunications area. So it felt like There was a backup plan if things didn't work out and it it made me feel okay with trying. So you finally pulled the plug. Yeah. Yeah. In 2015, I think it was September or something like that. I finally, finally left. And yeah, I mean, it was cool because like I said, I already had like stuff going at the studio. So I wasn't starting from nothing. Right. There had been this like two year run up and things were happening. Word was out a little bit. So yeah, it, it was a pay cut. I'll be honest, (laughs) big pay cut, but doable, especially now I was married. There's another income. It was okay. Yeah. And I'm sure you had some money socked away. Yeah. Yeah. I've been a saver. I mean, my mom taught me how to be a saver from a young age. She literally like got me a savings account as a child. So I was stashing money away. I had my rainy day fund. I had, you know, and when you're at Qualcomm, there's 401k and all that stuff. If you take advantage of that, you have some other stuff for later too already. So that kind of mentally sets you up for 14 years of investing in a 401k 
mm-hmm. and saving and learning how to adult with a safety net of, yeah. of, a, of a job like that, then making that transition into studio owner. So yeah. this studio is located at your house. Is it in the backyard? Is it a separate building? It's a separate facility, basically. Separate entrance, separate lounge kind of area, bathroom, kitchenette. It's comfy space for people to come, don't have to go in the house for anything. It's great. So I've talked to a number of people who have hired Wes to do their studios. So let's just break it down a little bit for those that aren't really familiar with the process. So Mm -hmm. when you do that, you're hiring Wes to essentially make some plans based on his design. Correct me if I'm wrong. Does Wes not have kind of like the Wes Lachaud design that he sticks to? There's definitely a similarity between his studios from studio to studio. They evolve. Okay. Does he give you choices? Does he say, okay, A, B, or C? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, aspects that you have some say in for sure. It's a collaboration of sorts, but he is the man. I mean, you don't want to like push him to try to do something that he's going to be like, no, I've never done that. I don't think it's going to work. You would be hiring the wrong guy. But yeah, there's choices of like I did a wraparound diffuser. I did this wall back here in wood and sometimes they're fabric, stuff like that, where you can upgrade or don't do quite as fancy or whatever. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So he charges you for the plans, and then Mm -hmm. does he facilitate the contractors? You can use some people that have done a lot of his studios, and I did. You don't have to. You can do it yourself. You can hire your own people. But the benefit, of course, of using this guy, Tony Brett, for the build-out, or at least for the like detailed build-out. I mean, I did have a local contractor do the basic shell of the building, because this was ground-up construction. So the basic shell was local contractor, basic electrical, basic HVAC. But the more detailed stuff, as it got down into the nitty-gritties of stuff that's weird, that's not normal for 
for the contractors that have ever, ever looked at. You get a guy like Tony Brett out here. You have to fly him out. But, man, it's worth it because he knows exactly what he's doing. He's built so many stu- Wesley Show studios specifically that it's going to be done right. Yeah. Oh, I love that idea. Because you want it done right, you hire the right people. End of story. Yeah. Because yeah, dealing you, with you a local wanna... contractor who's like got, well, you know, my... My uncle's got a hi-fi room or whatever. That's not going to work. <laughs> no, no, no. Studio construction is a little weird. Yeah. Were there any challenges with the city in terms of permitting and calling it, did you call it a studio? I mean, technically a media room and an office, but it was clear from the plans what it was, I think. But yeah, we didn't want to say studio specifically. But yeah, it is, it is basically a media room if you think about it. So yeah, and the city, I mean, yeah, it took a while to get the permits for sure. I think they were looking at it closely. There was weird stuff that came up like doing a soil analysis. Like, I don't know why. Something about the soil in this part of town is sometimes not so great to build on or something. I don't know. I just remember stuff like that happening where I was like, really? Okay. And then you got to fork out another bunch of money, pay some specialist to come out and do a soil analysis. So yeah, there's a lot of hoops to jump through for sure. Yeah. But yeah, it got done. It got done. So you got a control room, you got a live room. Do you have any ISO booths? Yeah, kind of the entryway and like on the other side of the control room, there's these sound locks that go to the live room from the control room to the live room. And those can double as ISO booths. They're a little small here, but I built as big as I possibly could on the property for the codes. So those sound locks are doubling as ISOs. And then in terms of AC, did you go with mini Mm -hmm. splits or did you have a forced air system? Forced air. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if Wes has done mini splits in the studio yet or not, but uh, yeah, at the time, certainly it was just, it's going to be forced air. It works great. I had to upgrade the system at some point though, because I had a different console before, like a, a Toft, and it didn't put out as much heat as this Neve Genesis. And once I put the Neve in, I think the system just died. <laughs> I think I killed it. <laughs> I had to put a bit bigger system in. So how many years in total have you had the space? It's nine years. Okay. Do you ever feel a sense of, I'm outgrowing this space, or I wish it was bigger? Are there things that you would change? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can feel that. It's definitely something that I think about. I can only build it so big. So it's modest in size. It gets the job done for a lot of things. But certainly, like, if I had bigger ISOs, if I had a bigger live room, if I you know, that would help. You know, it would help be able to get more types of clients and i think also like what if i had like a b room or something like that there's be more possibilities i could expand the business a bit so there is some kind of like upper ceiling kind of that i feel like i have right now so that's in the back of my mind for sure is like is there a way to to do something in a commercial facility i'm looking into that kind of stuff because i've been here nine years and things are going pretty well and I feel like there's there's potential there, but I want to do it carefully. Uh, when you left Qualcomm, did you did you set this up as as a proper business? And what business entity did you choose? Yeah, yeah, I did. It's a sole proprietorship. Technically, I called it Silverstein Sound Service, although the studio is called Rarified Recording. So yeah, I set it up as a proper business entity. The property does allow for what's called a home occupied business, so that's okay that I'm doing business here. But, you know, there's some limits in terms of number of hours you can have clients over and stuff like that. So I try to stay within those boundaries. And then as far as 
having people over, I noticed on your website, you give the general neighborhood, yeah. but you don't give the specific address. So yeah. how has that been navigating with outside engineers and, and musicians and interacting with the neighbors? Have there been any issues? Mm-hmm. Not with the neighbors and outside engineers. I mean, what can happen is people will be like, hey, where's the studio? <laughs> like, cause I, yeah, I don't publish the address just mm-hmm. so I don't, I just don't want people like showing up randomly. Like, Hey, there's a studio here. That just would be annoying. So yeah, sometimes I get those calls last minute of a musician or someone just being like, where is the studio? <laughs> but yeah, the, the neighbor thing has been fine. I mean, it's well soundproofed. I think the biggest thing is actually people coming and going. And so that's why I try not to have anything go too late. Because, you know, people are just going to get rowdy, especially if there's a bunch of them. So, yeah, a long day, long session, a few beers in. Yeah. little pot. <laughs> Everybody comes out of the studio kind of talking loud and going yeah. to their cars and slamming the doors. And if if you got a looky-loo neighbor, which many people yeah. do, there's going to be a little bit, you know, it, it's going to show up on on the next door social media app. <laughs> Who are these hooligans in the neighborhood? Right. Yeah, totally. No, yeah, I'm well aware of that potential. So I'm trying to stay away from those kind of problems because I don't want to have an issue with that. Do you ever second guess your decision to leave Qualcomm? No, no, I don't think so. I think this was a good choice for me. Other guys at the at the company, I could see like they were doing stuff in their spare time to like develop their skill set for Qualcomm, like learning a new programming language or developing like an internal tool to be used at Qualcomm to like do something that will save everybody a bunch of time. I was spending all my idle time like thinking about recording and doing recording and that kind of thing. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I just feel like this is where I should be. That was a great career that I had there, a great experience and certainly helped pay for this space. And like guys come in here and they're like, oh man, this is what I want too. And often I'm like, well, you might want to think about doing something like what I did in that case, because it's expensive. <laughs> it's hard to raise that money as like just a freelance engineer or whatever, you know? Yeah. What are some of the lessons that you've learned over nine years that could benefit those that are listening now that mm-hmm. are thinking about whether they're in a, a corporate job and thinking about doing exactly what you've done, or they're thinking yeah. about building the studio what are, what are the key lessons that you can think of that really come to mind? I've always had the thought that I need to keep the, the overhead low because it is not the heyday of recording anymore. The budgets are small. So you got to think about that. Like you don't, don't plan on like having a staff of people. Don't overspend too. like spend within your means. I mean, this is something you preach all the time of not going into debt. I mean, I think that applies here. I didn't do that everything's paid for, you know, the only debt is the mortgage on the the house itself. So those weren't lessons I learned from mistakes I made, but just from analyzing the situation, which is kind of what I do. Like even thinking about doing this bigger facility, it's like, I'm not going to do that unless I analyze the heck out of it and business plan and just look at it from every angle and try to make sure that it pencils out and there's some sort of backup plan like what happens if the worst case and it fails completely like what do you do then and some people say like don't have a plan b but i think it might be good to have some sort of like worst case scenario idea in case of emergency that you can pull (laughs) well here's a question for you thinking in terms of plan b is thinking in you know long view we'll say Mm -hmm. 
do you maintain the LinkedIn profile that obviously would include your Qualcomm experience, but also your studio experience, thinking in terms of, well, what if an opportunity presents itself where you could be a consultant, you could be, somebody could look at your Qualcomm experience and your studio experience and go, this guy might be the perfect candidate. Like, do you ever think in, in those terms of Yeah, I know job? on my LinkedIn for sure, I have that experience on there. The official business name that I have is Silverstein Sound Service as kind of an entity that I could consult an audio project of more of a product nature or something like that. I haven't really gotten those gigs. I've done some consulting for people who are building like studios mm. for sure. Yeah, like helping them make decisions on equipment and patch bay stuff and that kind of thing. Yeah, I've certainly done that. But yeah, I'm, I keep that as a potential opening for sure. Kind of a what if scenario. Yeah, you never know. You never know that something might come up. Yeah. Now, what about your experience at Qualcomm from an engineering perspective? Has mm -hmm. that benefited you in the use of pro audio gear? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a level of understanding for one that is a little deeper with someone who has a, a electrical engineering degree. It also, of course, can help me troubleshoot, debug, fix something. I mean, I'm not saying I'm super dangerous at fixing things, but a lot of times it's just something you pop the top off, you see a resistor that's blown or a capacitor that's blown. And it's like, okay, well, that's the problem right there. I know how to change it. I know how to solder. I know how to look at what the value is. That stuff comes in handy for sure. I've been able to fix some things that I might've had to send out otherwise. Yeah, But sometimes it's just not worth the time because it's like, well, okay, I could probably figure, figure this out, but it's going to be a lot of hours. It's just not worth it. And I'll send it out. Well, so I have to ask this question as devil's advocate. So you're trying to okay. keep your overhead low, but behind you, which the audience who's listening to the podcast can't see is a Neve Genesis. Yeah. I don't have any experience with a Neve Genesis, so I don't know what the, the upkeep is like. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in retrospect, that was a cost-effective decision? Do you think that it holds its value over time and it, does it require a lot of maintenance? It doesn't require much maintenance so far. Yeah, it's been pretty good. I mean, it's definitely a big expense. I had this Toph console before, but that one caused me more headaches. Yeah. That one had more maintenance issues and was causing downtime in the studio, like a lot. And I was having to get help from friends to basically pull the entire thing out because it was hard to like get at one channel. You had to basically like take the whole thing apart. Whereas this one, I have a spare channel and I can easily swap a channel out if something does go wrong with a particular channel. And then, yeah, it's not something you can really do the maintenance on yourself. I mean, if you look at one of the cards for these, it's pretty complicated. It's almost like a cell phone. It's packed with integrated circuits with chips with little surface mount components. It's not very serviceable on your own. So you do have to send things out to Neve, but it hasn't needed much so far. And like I said, yeah, the, the prior console was causing a lot of downtime and this one's been much more solid. And it, with the, the Neve, I think the cachet of that, it brings in more clientele, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a wow factor when you walk into a studio and it's of the traditional look and feel with a board mm -hmm. and, you know, soffit mounted speakers I see there. Well, let's talk about marketing the studio. Okay. When you were at Qualcomm, seems like you had some engineers coming in and, and the studio was getting booked, but when you eliminate the day job, you eliminate all that extra time you're spending outside of the studio. 
So did you change your habits and behaviors to help facilitate the marketing of the studio, the building of the business? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously I had a lot more time availability for myself to be an engineer because I do engineer and mix and all that. But it is still quite a mixture between me and other engineers. I've used a pretty organic sort of marketing approach. I haven't really done paid advertising. I've mostly worked Instagram as a social media, no cost to me, but right. you know, some time to, to make some posts and to reach out to people. I definitely reach out to musicians and bands that I find locally that seem interesting to me or engineers. I think that's another thing that would be worth mentioning to other listeners who have some kind of studio. Think about sharing it with, with other engineers. For me, that's really worked out. It's really kept the place busy. And I know some people don't feel comfortable with that. I understand. But if you vet people, you meet them, you talk to them, you see like, okay, this is this seems like a legit engineer, a good person. That can really help fill out the calendar because if you don't have a gig, maybe they have a gig. And there's a whole lot of people who are coming out of these schools, Matt, right? You know. Yeah. I mean, then there's n- not really any jobs at traditional studios for them to fill. If they want to work in studios, mostly they're going to have to be like freelance. So if you can embrace that community, which I have, I think it really helps. And it may mean that you're going to have less gigs, I guess. But I mean, I'm taking the gigs I can get, basically, right? And then the rest of it is other people filling in the other spots. So yeah, it's. I think that's been a really great thing for me. I would enjoy that more. I like the social aspect of it, of knowing that you have this community of other engineers coming in. And there's like a group of you that operate out of there. Totally. Yeah. And I'm still the sole sole owner and all that. I make all the decisions about everything. But these people benefit from what I was able to build here. And I benefit from them booking time. And it's a win-win and it is a community. And I think of it as such. So how did you arrive at the pricing that you have, whether it's you and the studio for clients or to the freelance engineers that are coming in? Right. Yeah. I mean, I took a pretty hard look at what was going on locally and what what seemed fair or what seemed doable for musicians down here and for the sort of I don't know the way things are in San Diego I feel like it's a little bit different than Los Angeles from what I can tell and from what I can gather from talking to other people in Los Angeles people are a little more motivated to make it quote unquote in the music industry, there's a little more money flow from the industries around it and from, I think, the individuals in that community who are trying to really get somewhere. In San Diego, it's a more low-key situation. A lot of people doing music on the side for fun, not with huge expectations. So there's a little less money uh, available, I think, than up there. So yeah, I had to price things that made sense that I got you know a decent wage for myself as an engineer, but still affordable. And then obviously for freelance engineers, guests coming in, I'd have to charge less because I want them to be able to make some decent amount of money. Yeah. And then the final bill to the client to be affordable. So that's part of keeping the low overhead is to make that possible. That That's the only way. So that's, that's really what I try to do. Cause I want, I want the studio to be available to as many musicians as possible, not just only like, a lawyer who can like afford to drop a bunch of money on their little side project or something. You know, and the benefit too, something for the audience to think about is that if you have a community of engineers coming in and working Mm -hmm. and something were to happen to you, 
let's say that, yeah. you know, a situation that would cause you to be on disability, for example. Right. I'm not trying to curse you here. I'm just trying to think of work. <laughs> let's Thanks, think of Matt. a worst case scenario. Disaster planning on working class audio. Yes. Yes. If something were to happen to you, if you have that community of engineers, that income is still coming in. It's a form of passive income in a sense. Yeah, more or less. I mean, once you get these people trained on the specifics of the studio, they're pretty good to go. Yeah. And then do you, do you try to bring in interns or is that not something you like to do? It's a recent thing that I, I started doing. Yeah. Yeah. If I, I sort of wasn't sure at first for a long time. I didn't want to do it because I just felt like, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be more work. But at some point I was like getting so many requests. I just feel like I got to try this, you know, like they hate turning people down over and over and over. So I gave someone a shot and it was, it was good. It was good. It was really helpful to have the extra set of hands. They got a lot out of it. Yeah. And it was someone that could be help with the breakdown and the cleaning of the studio, which gets old. I mean, especially the cleaning part. I was doing all of that at first myself. And for that, I do pay them something for the cleaning part. So yeah, it's been worth it in the end to have interns. You know, it's almost like having an Airbnb, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, no one stays overnight really, but. Yeah. I mean, you're booking a space for a day, I assume. Or hours. I mean, I'm fine if I'll fit someone in for two hours. Sure. But it's, it's got to be prepped for them to come into. It's got to be cleaned afterwards. It's. Yes. It's just. Yeah. That's important to me. Yeah. I don't want people to come into a space that's a mess and is dirty and all that. This is super cool. It's it's really fascinating to see that like Wes has done a lot of studios. Yeah. And he's and he's done a lot of studios for a lot of my guests and are there other people that do the kind of quality work that Wes does that are his competitors that would be building studios in in people's backyards or I don't, I mean, I don't know. Totally. I, I looked at a few different people at the time when I was looking for a designer and I talked to like one other guy in LA, but Wes was like really awesome about just being like, okay, yeah, you want to do this in the backyard? Yeah, no problem. He didn't look down on me because I was kind of coming at this from kind of a weird space of working in tech and all that. Like I obviously didn't, I wasn't like someone with a bunch, bunch of credits to my name or anything like that. Like he treated me like just as he'd probably treat any potential client for him. Yeah. So yeah, but there, you know, there's other studio designers out there, but Wes is great. I mean, he does such a good job. I hear great things about him. I've met him in passing in the past, mm -hmm. but yeah, maybe I should have Wes on the show. That'd be we cool. Wes show on the show. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to rarifiedrecording.com. Audience, please go awesome. check that Thank out. You. There's great pictures. I mean, gosh, if you want kind of a lesson in how to lay out a website for, <laughs> for your clients, this is a great example too. Thank you. Yeah, I worked hard on that. Yeah, you, you've done a great job. It's, it's, you know, it's to the point, gives everything you need is there. And yeah, I love it. I'm on Instagram too at Rarified Recording. I'll put, I'll put a link for that as well. Well, Roy, it's great to see you. Great to chat with yeah. you. I appreciate you making time for me, especially, you know, I know I called you last minute this week and I appreciate the, uh, yeah, I appreciate being on the show. It's yeah. Didn't, didn't really think it would happen, but here I am. I can die now. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously next time you're up here and you're near Walnut Creek, 
give me a shout and we'll go have another sure. coffee. Sounds great. All right. Well, you take care. Okay, you too. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Roy Silverstein here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Of course, a natural reminder, if you've been listening to the show, you know I'm going to remind you about the 15 tips to help you survive as an audio professional. Go to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. Of course, these are tips gathered from Eric Valentine, Andrew Sheps, Jack Indino, and Steve Albini. I think you'll find them useful. So that's it, workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That, of course, includes Anne-Marie Plowen, the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And, of course, if you have a question, you can always send it to me, Matt, at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>